I was talking to somebody this past week. You can turn in your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, and I was talking to somebody this past weekend about, uh, or beginning of last week, um, about, or end of last week, excuse me, about God's chain of events that he allows to take place when you don't even see him moving uh, in the moment, but you're able to look back. And anybody ever, you look back over your life and you see how God just kind of wove everything together. And even though you didn't really know what he was doing, yet he still did it anyway. And you look back now and you say, oh, that's why that happened. Um, and I, I'll go back to 1994. Uh, some of you weren't even alive in 1994. Uh, but uh, we're, there, we were alive then. There were people that lived here. And the Garden of Eden wasn't 1992. So, uh, But uh, 1994, uh, just go back to... My dad took his very first church in 1994, and uh, we moved to Reedsville, North Carolina, and uh, dad started pastoring in a small church, and uh, there was very few kids in the church. There was 14 people in the church other than our family uh, when dad started pastoring there, and uh, he talked to a preacher that he was connected to and uh, said, hey, is there anything in our area that I could get my kids involved in? There was three of us in our family, and, uh, and this preacher recommended two pastors uh, and said, hey, there's a guy in uh, 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 Walkertown, North Carolina, and they have a camp and a youth conference, and you should go. Even if it's just your kids that you take, you should take them and go. And everything they do, it'll be good, it'll be helpful for you and your family. And then uh, there's this church in Yadkinville, North Carolina, Peacehaven Baptist Church. And the pastor there is a good guy. And, um, and you, should, you should go there. They have special events and revivals and different things. And said you should, you should plug in to that uh, church. And that was two hours from where we were. And uh, the church in Walkertown was an hour from us. And so what I didn't realize then, you know, as an 11-year-old kid, didn't realize then that the one church was recommended to us in Walkertown was Gospelite Baptist Church, which had a Christian camp that several years later my wife would be working at when I would see her for the very first time. And Gospelite is also the church where we got married and spent a lot of times, made a lot of memories where my wife's family went to church. And so just a, a weird coincidence, we call them a coincidence, that other pastor who pastored in Yadkinville that this preacher friend of my dad's recommended preached my dad's very first revival meeting, and his name was Bruce Freeman. And Bruce Freeman, for those of you who have been at Crossroads a long time, Bruce Freeman grew up at Crossroads Baptist Church here in Fishersville. And so what I didn't realize then in the early 90s is that God was connecting the dots a long time long time before we got a phone call from Bruce Freeman, that same guy, and he said, hey, there's a church in Fishersville, my mom's church, is looking for a pastor. Would you consider moving to Virginia? And so crazy turn of events and how that uh, Brother Bruce grew up here and Gospelite was the connecting point, but even greater, I tell you all that, Pastor, what's that have to do with anything? The guy who recommended those two churches to my dad was Floyd Repass. The guy who just prayed 
So you never know. As God is connecting the dots. Years later, you're able to look back. And I say all that to intro this message. David is on the run now from Saul. And has no idea what God is doing. And has no idea. You know, you think about David has been anointed years before this event to be the next king over Israel. Why is he forced to go on the run? Why? This would be, for us, looking back, it would be easy for us to say, God, this is not fair. Why would you subject me to do all this just so that uh, I have to go out and live in caves and live on the run and in fear for my life and do all these crazy things? Why in the world? But David is living out those spiritual markers that Henry Blackaby talked about in his book, Experiencing God. He's living out those spiritual markers that he would be able to look back later and say, that's why. That's why. And maybe you're in the middle of those spiritual marker moments in your life and you're saying, God, why am I going through this? This is not fair. This is not fun. Uh, this requires great faith. Why are you making me do this? It's so that you and I can look back years later and see those spiritual markers and say, that's why God did that. I now can see where now in the moment we say, I don't understand, we can look back later and say, now I know. Now I understand. 1 Samuel chapter 21. Let's read a couple verses here. And uh, someone said, think about David is living all this way, living uh, this way for a reason. But even people with good character make bad decisions. Uh, someone wisely said, character is who you are when no one's watching. But then someone said anonymously, character is built on daily decisions. Never let character... Give way to convenience. Never let character give way to convenience. It is always easier to do wrong than it is to do right. And David is going to prove here in 1 Samuel 21 that even though he was doing right, he made poor choices. Now let's look at verse number 1. And if you're note, writing notes, you can write down, number 1, the dishonesty. The dishonesty. Verse number 1. Then came David to Nob. To Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand or what there is present. But the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from about us for about these three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is as a manner of custom. Yea, though it were sanctified, this bread in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken. If you were to look at a map, and we'll have a map on the screen for you tonight, David is traveling south. Remember last week we talked about how he was in Ramah up near the top of the screen and uh, Gibeah of Saul. and uh, He's going to travel south these uh, five, six miles to a place called 
knob. He's going to end up at the end of our text over on the left-hand side of the screen at the place called Gath. We're going to see that in just a minute. But he's here in Nob, north of Bethlehem where David was from. Uh, but he is in Nob, this place, this in-between place. Uh, not with Samuel in Ramah, Samuel's hometown. Uh, away from Saul where they were. But now he is in this place called Nob. He meets up with an unusual ally. We see mentioned in verse number 1 this man named Ahimelech. Ahimelech is the high priest at this time, and he is the great-grandson of the high priest Eli that we saw at the beginning of this series in 1 Samuel chapter number 1. He's the great-grandson of Eli, and he is the high priest in the place of his great-grandfather. But there's something wrong here in verse number 1. It says that Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David. He was afraid. It's almost as if Ahimelech is apprehensive of why David is coming to him. I'm sure that word had traveled to Ahimelech and uh, the other priests who were there in this place of Nob. And, uh, they knew who David was. They knew who Saul was. They could have possibly even known that Saul had said, hey, if you see David, kill him. Uh, I want this guy dead. They knew who he was, knew David, knew what he had done with Goliath. But he was still afraid at the meeting, afraid that David had shown up unannounced and had no idea why he was there. It just reminds me that there are times in our lives when we go through situations or we're presented with circumstances and apprehension is the natural feeling that we have. But even though there is an apprehensive feeling or we're nervous or we're not sure why we're being faced with this, there should be a limit to that feeling. There should be a limit to that emotion. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter number 1 and verse number 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. We lived through that three and a half years ago, didn't we? God, uh, in a situation that nobody had ever experienced before. Uh, I told somebody a couple weeks ago, there's no such thing, when no one has ever experienced it, there's no such thing as godly counsel. You know, say, oh, we, we want to get godly counsel and get advice. But when all of us are experiencing the very thing for the very first time, and no one has ever been there before, there is no such thing as godly counsel. There's godly advice, but no such thing as godly counsel. Because that has to mean that someone's been there, done that, and when it hadn't been that way for over 100 years, it's kind of hard to get uh, godly counsel. But there should be a limit to those feelings. When we're apprehensive or uh, we're scared, there should be a limit there. The unknown should not put us in a state of fear or panic because we trust in the one who is there in the unknown. We trust the one who has experienced those things, knows what's going to happen. Uh, we don't have to know what tomorrow holds as long as we know the one that holds tomorrow. But when we talk about that unknown, we face that, those things, those experiences, those seasons of our life when we don't know what's going to happen next, it is easy for us to be afraid. But for the very first time, we see David lie. Not encouraging someone to lie. We saw that last week, how he encouraged Jonathan, hey, say this to your dad. For the very first time, we see David himself lie. He lies to Ahimelech. He gives him this grand story of 
I'm here because Saul has sent me. And it's weird, and I've been gone three days, and my men are hungry, and we're looking for food, and we just need some advice, and we need uh, somebody to take care of us. We're on this secret mission. Don't tell. That is the story. Now, it's easy for us to know that this is a lie. But Ahimelech doesn't know that. Uh, No one else in Nob knows why David is there. Something doesn't add up. Why is David here? Why is David by himself? Why isn't there some kind of announcement before he arrives? Maybe he thought that the truth would uh, threaten Ahimelech, threaten the other priests. And as we get into the story next week, we'll find out that even if he would have told them the truth, it would not have changed the end result because Ahimelech and all these priests are going to die. The very next chapter, they're all going to be killed. Just for allowing David to be there without some kind of severe repercussion. But David says, hey, I'm hungry and I need bread. Here's the problem. The bread that was available was not allowed for David to have. We see in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse number 5, when God is talking to Moses and the children of Israel, giving them specific instructions about the tabernacle and about the items inside the tabernacle. It says in Leviticus 24, 5, Thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof. Two-tenths deals shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row upon the pure table before the Lord. Thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. Here it is. And it shall be Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. This was supposed to be consumed by the priests. He even says in verse number uh, 5 and 6, hey, there's no common bread here. This is holy bread. This is uh, bread that is set apart for service of the Lord. It's interesting that one of the gripes and criticisms that the religious leaders had when Jesus was in his uh, third year of ministry was uh, one of the things that they did was they forsook the traditions. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks in our series in Mark. But uh, they forsook the traditions of men. And Jesus leaned back into what the reasoning of the law was and what it pointed to. But the bread was prepared on the Sabbath for the priests. And Ahimelech offers it to David because he is convinced that, hey, if the king were here, I would offer it to the king. But if this guy is on an errand from the king, I guess it's okay. So as we see... Not only is David in the wrong, but David leads someone else in the wrong. It's easy for us to make those decisions as we step away from the Lord and His leading for our life. But isn't it ironic that when we make decisions that are wrong, that we lead other people astray as well? It's easy for us to say, well, you know, it just, Pastor, it just affects me. It's my life and uh, what I do doesn't affect anybody else. That's not what happened with David. David's bad decision is now having a consequence on Ahimelech. And Ahimelech is now doing something that is not allowed because of this story from David. David's in a desperate situation. And when we're faced with desperate situations, many times we make poor choices. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying, 
that it may minister grace unto the hearers. What David is doing here is not good communication. What David is saying here is not something that is providing grace. It's not building up, but rather it's tearing down. David Platt said, One's disposition toward a behavior does not mean justification for that behavior. That's the way he is doesn't mean that's how he should act. We justify poor behavior by saying, oh, that's just how they are. But that doesn't excuse bad behavior. We're all responsible for the decisions that we make in this life. And David had an opportunity to be honest, but he chose not to be, which causes us to ask, am I honest? I know we all have had or heard stories of those used car salesmen. Those used car salesmen who will say anything to get a sale. Man, this is going to be the best sale of your life. This is going to be the best car you've ever had. This is going to be the best price you're ever going to get. Man, nobody else is going to do this for you. I am giving you a steal. Don't pass it up. We've all heard those stories. And we all know that those guys will say anything to make that sale. But I wonder how many times we'll say anything to make a sale. Maybe not selling a car, but we'll say anything to get out of a jam. We'll say anything or do anything to prove that we're right. We'll say anything to justify our poor choices. How many of you heard somebody say, you know what, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's ironic to me that the people who say that, they put themselves in that wrong place at the wrong time. We all have a choice. and David is making the wrong choice here. We see the dishonesty that he shows. But then number two in verse number seven, we see that there's a deputy that's present. I love this truth that we see in verse number seven on display because it's almost like the Lord drops this in as something that we'll come back to later. Don't you see how the Lord does that sometimes in the Bible? Just like one verse, one snippet of information that doesn't really seem to fit, but it's going to fit later. Look at verse 7. And Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there. Where? Nob. This place where David is. One of the men who is there watching this conversation between David and Ahimelech is one of Saul's servants, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg. Please don't ever name your child Doeg, right? Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul. We see what this guy's position is. He's a shepherd. He's here for some reason that the Lord has ordained for him to be here. Before the Lord, it says. But we see who he's connected to. He's connected to Saul twice. It's mentioned. He is one of Saul's servants. And he just so happens to be here. This servant. To me, it shows that no matter where we are and what we're doing, someone is always watching us. And Doeg is here and sees David And more importantly than seeing David, Doeg knows exactly who David is. And Doeg knows exactly what Saul says about David. And we'll see that in the next chapter. But he's a servant of Saul. 
What's interesting is that the high priest in this story is supposed to be loyal to God and to the king. And by meeting with David, by feeding David, by helping David, Ahimelech is showing that he is disloyal to Saul. Now we can all go around a room and talk about how you know, David was the rightful king. He was going to be the next anointed. He, he probably didn't deserve the treatment that Saul was given. We, we can make all those arguments. But the fact remains is that the high priest had a responsibility to the Lord first and then to the king. And by helping David, Ahimelech is showing that he's not loyal to Saul. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 19 and verse number 1 It says, and Saul spake to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Doeg knew what Saul's command was. And he knew that he would not be pleased with what Ahimelech was doing. I think it's interesting as well that in the very next chapter, after Doeg gets involved in this story in a greater way, David speaks to Abiathar which is Ahimelech's son, and says in 1 Samuel twenty two twenty two, I knew it that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. David sees Doeg. David could have said, you know what? I shouldn't be here. I'm not going to stay here because I know what Doeg will do. But David kept going with the lie. He kept the story alive and it ended up costing people their lives. First uh, Corinthians 15:33, "Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners." The lie that David is telling, and Doeg could have been there for a good reason. It says before the Lord, so obviously the Lord had some kind of control in this situation. But what David is doing, evil communication, he's there saying the wrong thing, is corrupting the simplicity that, De- that Doeg has in being there in the first place. At the end of the day, I wrote this down, at the end of the day, bad character rises to the top. But bad decisions in front of people who have bad character can make their bad behavior even worse. Let me say that again. At the end of the day, bad character rises to the top, but bad decisions in front of people who have bad character can make their bad behavior even worse. Doeg, loyal to Saul, to a fault, which we'll see in the next chapter. But because David makes a bad decision, bad character, it affects someone to make a bad decision. Birds of a feather flock together. And sometimes we can be guilty by association. And David's poor choice is now going to have a lasting consequence. We see the desire in verse number 8 and 9. And David said unto Ahimelech. Now here's where the story kind of morphs into a bigger story. And there... And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? Now this is a fairly simple question. Hey, do you have a weapon here? But what's interesting is that would you imagine going into a place of worship 
and finding a weapon. If you come into this place of worship and you find a weapon, I need to know about that like right now. Okay, But you think about, hey, you wouldn't just normally walk into a, a church and say, hey, you guys got any guns in a closet leaned up? A, you know, you got a shotgun leaned up somewhere? You think about this. This is what David's asking. Hey, you got a sword? You got a spear here that I can borrow? It's a, this is kind of an interesting question. But David is asking the wrong person in the wrong place for the wrong thing. All of this. But there's a surprise. There was a weapon. Look at verse number 8 again. He says, For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. The story just keeps getting better. Hey, I, I had to leave so fast that I could not even grab a sword. I wonder how that would fly if you're in the military and you got orders to leave immediately and you told your commanding officer on the battlefield, you know what, I didn't even have time to get my gun. That's not going to go over very well. And that's what David is saying. Hey, I, I, I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Do you have something? And look what Ahimelech says, verse 9. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here. Hey, you remember that sword that you used, David, to kill Goliath? That's right over here. If you want that, you can have it. But that's the only sword that we have. But if you want it, you can take it. It almost implies that David knew where the sword was. Remember, he was given the armor. He carries it back in chapter 17 and 18. He carries that armor back to his tent. Somehow it makes it here to Nob. And, he, and it makes that sword is here. It almost shows us that David knew where it was. David knew that it would be here. And it's, maybe he knew that Ahimelech had it. Or he had entrusted it to him. But when he first used the sword, he was just a teenager. This is years later. Now he's a warrior. It would be easier for David to wield this sword in battle now that he was a bigger guy. He was a stronger man. He was a kid then. Now he's a man. He's ready. But it also showed something. Think about David carrying around, whether he wore it on his back or he had it on his hip and he's dragging it through town. Imagine this sword. Everybody knew whose sword that was. And everybody knew that David had flung that sword. Everybody knew what that meant. It meant that's him. That, that's the guy that killed the giant. That's him. Because everybody knew who David was. We even hear David and Goliath today in our culture, don't we? We hear it typically in sports. Man, this is a David and Goliath battle. You've got this big, strong team, and then you've got this underdog. You think about, uh, you hear about it in basketball, college basketball. Man, uh, here you got this number one seed versus this, sorry to bring it up, uh, the number one seed versus the 16 seed. Uh, you know, it just happens. Never happened before. UVA. Uh, but uh, it never happened before. David and Goliath. You, everybody knows who David and Goliath is. Everybody knows there was a giant and then there was a kid and the kid defeated the giant. Everybody knows that. But the sword was a visual reminder of God's provision and protection. It was something that people could see and know that God 
had defeated the giant. I wonder, what has God given you that he's given to you to show others how big he is? What in your story has God done for you in your life that is a reminder to other people that God is real and he fights your battles? You know, our theme this year is the battle is the Lord's. I wonder how often we actually share that the Lord is the fighter of our battles. Or do we walk around like a Himalek, afraid of the meeting? Man, I, I, man, I sure hope God does something. I, I don't know what He's going to do, and, and I, I'm scared. And, is that how we walk around, or do we walk around with confidence that God is fighting our battles for us? What has He done? What blessing do we have to prove that He is active in our lives? Remember the apostles in Acts chapter number 4, verse 18? They're drug out into the city center. And verse number 18, it says, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Hey, we told you guys, don't talk about him. In Acts 4, 19, Peter and John answered and said, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, more than unto God, judge you. Hey, think about this. Is it better that we obey you or God? Consider that. And then verse number 20, I love this. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't help but talk about the things that we've seen Him do in our life. We've seen it with our own eyes. We've heard about it. We've heard all these people talk about how God has changed their life. We can't help but talk about those things. I wonder if we can help it. God does something miraculous in our job. God does something miraculous in the life of our kids. God does something miraculous at church. And we carry it out our lives like nothing has happened. Or the next trial or difficulty we face, we act like God cannot come through. I wonder if we can help but talk about the things that we've seen or heard. We all have stories where God has shown up and shown out. But how often are we talking about those stories? That's how people know that God is real and moving in our lives when we share what He's done. In our lives. All of us have a story. All of us have a story. You say, well, pastor, God hasn't done anything in my life that I can share. But what has he done for you? If nothing else, he's changed your life through the gospel. Hey, I don't, I'm not talking about we have to go and say, man, I was a drunkard or I was an adulterer. Or I was, man, I was a drug addict. I don't, I'm not talking, we don't glorify sin, but we should glorify Him. We should point people to Him. Man, I was lost. I was without hope. I didn't have peace in my life. And He has turned everything around sharing our story of what He's done in our lives. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We have to talk about those things. Are we taking time to tell other people? And I, I understand, you know, well, you know, I, I can't do it on the clock. But what about when you're off the clock? What about when somebody comes in there in your room or your office or uh, comes and talks to you or calls you and says, man, I, my life is a mess and I don't know what I'm going to do next. 
That is a golden door of opportunity for us to say, you know what? I'm so thankful that I don't feel that way about my life because God gives me hope and peace and encouragement and comfort and all these things that the world can't give. What a great opportunity for us to share, but do we? Do we take advantage of those moments? We see lastly tonight the disorder that's mentioned. Verse number 10. David takes the sword, starts out. Verse number 10. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. Now let's talk about this for a second. Uh, Ryan, if we could get the map back up there just for a minute, that'd be great. Let me just point something out. David is in Nob, and he starts running to Gath, fear of Saul. So he goes to the place where he knows Saul will not come. Gath. What is, where is Gath located? It's in Philistia. Who was from Philistia? Goliath and the Philistines. Gath is one of five major cities in Philistia. Five. But Goliath also had the notoriety of being the hometown of Goliath. And where does David run to? Gath. I'm going to go somewhere where I know Saul won't come. But he's also running to the most dangerous place he could go. Because not only did the Israelites know who David was, every one of the Philistines knew who David was. There were wanted posters all over town. You think Saul wanted David dead? Every Philistine wanted David dead for a totally different reason. They wanted to kill him. And so what happens? Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said unto him, This is Achish, king of Gath. They said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul is slain of thousands, and David is ten thousands? Hey, king, why are you letting him stay here? This is the guy who killed Goliath. Have you forgotten? This is the guy they sang all the songs about. He is the king of the land. Now, they didn't know that he was anointed king. But as far as influence, David was the king. He is the guy. Why is he here? Verse number 12. And David laid up these words in his heart. David starts hearing about it. Can you imagine David going through Gath and hearing all the sneers and all the jeers and people talking about him? All of a sudden, he goes from one level of fear to the next level of fear. And was sore afraid of Achish. So what does David do? This is beautiful. Hey, if I can't be big and bold and powerful... Among the enemy, what's he going to do? Verse 13. And he changed his behavior before them. Change, what's he do? And he feigned himself mad in their hands. What would you have to do? Some of you are like, well, that sounds like my spouse. Uh, but what would you have to do to look like you have lost your mind? Because that's what David's getting ready to do. He feigns himself mad and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. He starts wallowing around like a dog, drooling uncontrollably. 
writing, just walking around, drawing on different objects, the gates of the city, acting like he is insane. And look at verse 14. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, you see the man is mad. Man, this guy has had so many conflicts of his life, he has lost his mind. Wherefore, why? Why have you brought him to me? Why are you talking about him? He's crazy. He is of no value to us. He's no value to them. Let him alone. Verse 15. Have I need of madmen that you brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He is no consequence to us. He's crazy. Leave him alone. He cannot do us any harm. Now, David felt it was safer for him to be around the enemy than it was to be around God's people. I wonder how many times feel like they're better off being around the world than they are around Christians. I wonder, are the godless more honest than those who claim to be saved? Are, are the godless more at peace with where they are than those who say that they're saved? Are the godless people more compassionate than those who say that they're saved? Are the godless and the lost crowd and the wicked crowd, are they more focused on life and the things that really matter than those who are saved? You think about this. David says, I'm more comfortable around the enemy than I am around God's people. I wonder by our behavior, are we more comfortable? Do we let our guard down more around lost people or around saved people? You know, there is such a thing as Christian separation from the world. We are supposed to be different in and not of the world. But we should not feel like this is our home because it's not. For the saved, we're not staying here. We're passing through here. We're headed to a land that uh, there's a land that is uh, there's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. You think about there is another place coming that's better than this one. And for the saved, this is as bad as it'll ever be. But for the lost, this is as good as it'll ever be. But are we more at home here than the place we're going to? David said, I am more at home with the wicked than I am with the godly. David comes into town and all these different things. But consider David doesn't just walk into town. What is David carrying? He's carrying this massive sword. You think they recognized it? You think they recognized that it was Goliath's sword that David is? I mean, that's one of those things that it's kind of hard to hide. It's not something that you can just conceal. You know, conceal, don't feel. You know, it's not one of those things where you can just hide Goliath's sword. Let me just stick that in my backpack, you know. Goliath, sword. It reminds us of 1 Samuel 18, verse 30. It says, Then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass, after they went forth, that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. David's reputation went before him. He was someone who had good character and leadership, even from the enemy. But when he changed his behavior, it worked. 
he was a chameleon. But even though David on the outside looked like he didn't have a clue of what was going on, he wrote how he really felt in Psalm 34. Let me, let's read this. Psalm 34, verse 1 through 4. He writes this psalm while he's in Gath in fear of Achish. See if you recognize this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. And here's the verse. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. And I love verse 4. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. David might have looked like he had lost his mind on the outside. But on the inside, he was as cool as a cucumber. He knew exactly where his confidence was. Everything on the outside is going crazy. But on the inside, he was at complete peace. Remember what John said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3 and 4? And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, wherever you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. And then he says in verse 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. That spirit that works all around us, that spirit that's anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Jesus, you've overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. David is in the middle of chaos, acting like he is the chaos. But he leaned into the fact that the Lord was with him. You know, think about this last phrase, this thought. You might be surrounded by the enemy, but the one who is living in you is greater than anyone or anything that's surrounding you. You might be surrounded by the enemy, but the one who is living in you is greater than anyone or anything that's surrounding you. We look at our life and we see all this turmoil going on. Hey, he's greater. Greater is the one who lives in me. Greater is the love of Jesus. Greater my sin, greater my shame. He is greater than anything else that's surrounding me. Remember Elijah and the servant? And Elijah said, Lord, open his eyes that he can see what I see. And the servant saw the chariots and the army, God's army, around the Syrian army. And what did it do? It settled him. When we look through eyes of faith and we see that God is still in control. Hey, we don't have to be afraid, church. We don't have to be afraid. Hey, I don't have to see the now and now. I can look back and see the markers along the way where God has played his hand masterfully as the ultimate chess master. And he has moved every single piece according to his design, according to his plan, according to his purpose, so that his will is accomplished in and through me. That is who he is. And hey, just a reminder, that's what he does. And he always will.
Father, thank you so much for the promises of your word. Thank you for even though that David is in the wrong place. And he's got there through the wrong methods and the wrong message. Lord, even though he's in the middle of chaos and surrounded, you are still giving him peace because you are with him. Lord, help us to lean into the fact that you are always with us. Thank you for your promises to confirm that again and again. Lord, please bless and help us to lean into you. Lord, help us to take comfort in the fact that you are with us. We love you so much. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go to our prayer time tonight and uh, pray over the requests that we have. Guys are hands.